Welcome to the Ripe Labs podcast. I'm Alan Davies, the Ripe Labs editor. We're back with a whole new set of episodes on a range of topics that are sure to be of interest to all of you out there in the community who are working to help keep the internet running. As we say always in security, there is a trade-off between utility and security, always. That's why we study the internet us as researchers, because it's a living organism if you think about it. And it's fascinating the way it has grown the last 30 years. We wanted to build a tool to prove that the research approach works. A few months ago, it was with great pleasure that I got to record a conversation with Lefteris Manisakis, one of the internet researchers behind the Artemis project, which we've covered in a number of articles here on Ripe Labs. You can see that in the show notes. And more recently, co-founder of the company CodeBGP. Those of you who attend community events will very likely have already seen Lefteris either up on stage or in the hallways talking enthusiastically about all things BGP and just about anything else internet related. He and I finally got chance to sit down and have the big conversation about BGP that we've been talking about having for quite a while now. As most people listening to this know very well, the Border Gateway Protocol is the de facto routing protocol for the internet. But it's also a protocol with many vulnerabilities. And what's more, it's only really deeply understood by a relatively tiny fraction of people. But having those people out there who can help keep BGP more secure and who can share their expertise with others is absolutely essential to the running of the global internet. That said, in this episode, we wanted to talk all about BGP, from its beginnings back at RFC 1105, through the Valley Free Principle, all the way to hijack monitoring and alerting with approaches such as Artemis and services like CodeBGP. Here's our episode. I used to be a network engineer. It had mm. nothing to do with research. I was a network engineer in the University of Crete, and I was in charge of the Greek school network for the region. So the Greek school network is a closed network with all the schools of Greece, 16,000, 17,000 schools. And the reason for that is that, you know, we need to protect the kids against uh, violence, uh, drugs, bad stuff on the internet. So mm. it's, a, it's a filtered network, it's a closed network. And I was also working on the University of Crete's network, which is a big university. And Fontas, who's my partner now in, the, in Code BGP, and he's also a professor at the University of Crete, had an open position in the Foundation of Research and Technology in Greece, which is the affiliate research institute of the University of Crete, looking for a research engineer. And the advertisement got out on uh, June 2015. And it was, I mean, it had an end date of December 31, 2015. So I was looking at the ad and it was asking for a, a researcher uh, with a research background, with stuff like that. And I was thinking, I'm not a researcher, why should I apply there? In the end, the last day of 2015, I said, heck it, you know. I took my cover letter and I said, I'm not a researcher, I have no research background, but I've done this and that, and I believe I can contribute to your research group. Yeah. I sent the application and a few days later, I got a phone by Fondas asking me to, to have a call, uh, in an interview. And since then, we have been working together for the last six, seven years, and we have published like five papers in top venues. We've done so much stuff, and we also started the company last year. So, you know, it's a lesson for, for myself and for everybody that might be listening that, 
you need to take your chances. I mean, don't be afraid to try. That's, that's my point. Nice. Okay. So that gives us an idea of some of your background. Um, let's dive into the background of what we're going to talk about today, BGP. Yeah, sure. So um, BGP was first introduced in 1989 okay. as in the first RFC back then, the BGP version 1. Currently, we use BGP version 4, which was the RFC, if I remember the number is 4271. Actually, I do remember because I'm very good with numbers. It was introduced in 1996. Okay. So it's an old protocol. It's quite old. And after the, this RFC, a lot of RFCs came out that extended BGP and uh, added capabilities to BGP. And it's remarkable how um, it managed to withstand the growth of the internet because, as Geoff Houston says very eloquently, internet was an experiment that was not supposed to escape the lab. It's a very <laughs> funny quote that yeah. I really like. Every time um, I get into a conversation with somebody who really understands BGP, I'm always reminded just like how much there is to unpack here and how complicated uh, a topic this is. So maybe it's good to start by just asking the basic question, what is BGP? BGP is the glue that holds the internet together. Why is that? Because it is used to propagate routing information between autonomous systems. And by um, routing information we mean prefixes blocks of IP addresses that belong to an autonomous system. And an autonomous system is a network that is under the, the same administrative domain. So BGP is the protocol that is used for the autonomous systems to exchange reachability information, network layer reachability information, and LRIs, which are basically the prefixes. So by exchanging the prefixes, the autonomous systems figure out the paths that traffic needs to take through the internet in order to reach a destination. Mm -hmm. So why we, we use BGP is one question and not something else. That's one question. Another question is why we have BGP for 30 years, 40 years now and we don't change it. One very important reason is that it's very scalable and uh, it has withstand the test of time. When the internet was first developed, the networks that were Part of the internet were governments, uh, research institutes, universities. As I said, it was an experiment. So nobody expected the growth that uh, the internet will have. To speak about the growth a bit, there is this Greek scientist uh, named Christos Papadimitriou, okay. who's uh, finding a lot of similarities between how the internet has grown. Compared to the human brain, the complexities are similar. And that's why we study the internet as researchers, because it's a living organism, if you think about it. Yeah. And it's fascinating the way it has grown the last 30 years. So one very important attribute of BGP is scalability, the, the ability that has led us currently to have 1.14 million prefixes in the global routing table on 1.15 that I have at least in my route collector, which is a huge number compared to, to uh, how we started. And also we have more than 70,000 autonomous systems that uh, are being used. A second very important thing, and even some, some, someone might consider it even more important, is the ability that BGP gives you to express policy. 
In other protocols, like OSPF, very important limit of OSPF is scalability. Because in, in OSPF or ISIS, for example, which are interior gateway protocols, the number of routes that can be handled by OSPF are in the order of tens of thousands at most, not millions like BGP. So this is the scalable part. In terms of policy though, the difference of BGP is that the attributes that, that the routes have are attributes of the prefixes themselves and not the links. So for example, in OSPF you have two links okay. and you can say I prefer this link and I do not prefer this link. Right. But all the prefixes that are, are uh, part of OSPF are affected by this decision. So all prefixes need to take this route to go to the, the next neighbor, for example. Right, okay. Whereas in BGP, you have more granular ability to affect the policy and say this prefix, regardless of links, has this preference. This prefix should go this way. The other prefix should take this other way. Okay. So by expressing policy, you also affect the business aspect of the internet. Uh, meaning that this link costs me a lot of money, so I should de-prefer it. This link is, uh, has a, I have a better agreement with this provider. I should take this link to go to the internet. Or uh, I should take this link because it's faster, it has better latency, uh, more throughput, whatever. So these are the main uh, characteristics of BGP. The scalability and the ability to express policy that have uh, enabled it to, to be the de facto protocol for inter-domain routing. That's interesting that you say there, and I, I don't know whether you would characterize this as a benefit or a burden, um, but that scalability of BGP, the fact that it's been able to grow the way it has, makes it hard to imagine um, change uh, or the adoption of some alternative approach. Exactly. So you can imagine as, as the internet started to grow, BGP uh, was being used in more and more routers all over the world. Currently, we have millions of routers uh, that are using BGP. So, uh, since BGP was introduced, a lot of other uh, proposals have been uh, out there in the ITF and other venues to replace BGP. But, I mean, imagine how difficult it is um, there needs to be a way to remotely push a new firmware, imaginably, mm -hmm. to each router that exists all over the world that will, will upgrade the router's capabilities to support this protocol and also switch it on for all the, inter for all the globe all at the same time, which yeah. is, it requires global coordination between millions of people. Yeah. Basically, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I think we will. We are stuck with BGP for the foreseeable future, at least. Right. So that seems like a good point to turn to some of the problems with BGP, and in particular, BGP security. Yeah. So, um, as I said, the internet was not supposed to escape the lab. So, and also the organizations that uh, at first were members of the what was called back then called the, Ar the ARPANET, that then became the internet were uh, organizations that trusted each other. So in BGP, there is no inherent security mechanisms in place because everybody was trusting each other. And uh, that 
can cause a lot of problems because as uh, the internet has grown and now everybody uses it, we have bad actors that can launch different types of attacks that cause uh, disruptions or even outages of, uh, of the internet. Yeah. The two main categories of routing anomalies that we see out there are the BGP hijacks, one main category, mm-hmm. that we have studied also in the Artemis paper extensively. And the other anomaly is uh, the route leaks. Uh, so first of all, for the hijacks, as we said, there's no inherent security authentication of the routes in BGP. So basically, anybody can claim that this autonomous system owns this prefix, yeah. although it does not in reality. So this is a hijack, and when I am, as the hijacker myself, I announce a prefix with my own AES, mm-hmm. although this prefix belongs to another AES, another autonomous system, this is what we call in Artemis a type zero hijack, or is, it's also called an origin hijack, where the autonomous system originating the prefix is not the right one, it's not the correct one. And this is a problem because if I am announcing a prefix as the hijacker and you are announcing the same prefix as the legitimate owner of the prefix, we will split the internet, the entire globe, into two parts and the networks that are closer to my network will come towards me, Mm -hmm. whereas the networks that are closer to your network, closer in terms of AS hops, will come towards you. So I will steal parts of your traffic. Now, if I do a sub-prefix announcement, meaning instead of announcing a slash 22 that you own in IPv4, I will announce two slash 23, for example. In this case, I will steal all the Internet's traffic and take it towards myself Mm -hmm. because the golden rule of routing is that the most specific prefix always wins. These are the sub-prefix hijacks, as we call them. So we have uh, other types of hijacks, like, for example, what we call in the Artemis paper the Type 1 hijacks, or the forged origin hijacks, which means that the attacker is not falsifying the origin uh, because this will be prevented, this announcement will be prevented by RPKI, as we will discuss in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it falsifies the first hop neighbor of the victim, pretending that he's your neighbor and uh, announcing your prefix with your own AS as origin, but himself as neighbor. Okay. And so basically stealing the traffic towards himself. And it's the same idea as the um, sub-prefix hijacks. If it does this with a sub-prefix, all the internet will take uh, of this part of the prefix will uh, go towards him and then he can tunnel back the traffic to you, mm-hmm. essentially uh, launching a man-in-the-middle attack yeah. in order to infiltrate uh, the, the traffic and eavesdrop it. Uh, this is a typical type of attack that is used uh, for um, stealing bitcoins, cryptocurrencies. Yeah, okay. But also it can be staged by malicious governments that want to do something to another country, you know. But these types of attacks are not misconfigurations. It's not that they happen out of accident. Somebody is launching a specific attack towards a network 
Yeah. And also knows a lot about BGP and how it works in order to be able to do such an attack. And there are also type 2 and beyond. And uh, they are also more uh, challenging to detect. So in the Artemis paper, we have a methodology on how to detect type 2 and beyond hijacks that uh, encourage our listeners to take a look at the paper for more details. Okay, cool. So that's a, a good overview of the different types of hijacks. Um, but how do, how do route leaks differ from all this? So the route leaks uh, are a more, even more complex event that takes place. Let's start with background that we need to have. It's a hierarchical protocol, BGP, meaning that we have the providers that are providing connectivity and traffic to their customers, and we also have the peers. The peers are networks that peer with each other and exchange traffic without any money uh, exchange. The customer pays the provider for the connectivity and the traffic they provide. So, in 2001, there was this famous paper by Gao and Rexford that introduced the valley-free routing notion. Why we call it valley-free, it's important to explain. Because if you think of providers as having weight of number one, mm -hmm. the customers have a weight of minus one and the peers have a weight of zero. So, we have a scale. One, zero, minus one. Mm -hmm. Okay, from top to bottom. Traffic and also how we propagate prefixes should have only a downwards path. We should not have valleys. We yeah. should not have go downwards and then go upwards. And why do we say this should be? Because let's say that I'm a, an autonomous system myself and I receive an, a prefix from one neighbor and I propagate this prefix to another neighbor of mine. Yeah. And neither one of those two are paying me. If I propagate this prefix, I'm doing a route leak because I'm introducing a valley. And why is that important? Why, is that, why do we care about this? Because let's say that myself, that I'm doing the route leak, I'm messing up, I'm doing a misconfiguration. Yeah. Normally, this stuff takes place as misconfigurations, okay. usually. I will pay the price of uh, basically forwarding traffic that I should not be forwarding and paying the cost for it. So it's my mistake, I should pay for it, everything is good. This is not the case though, because usually the networks that do the route leaks, they don't have the capacity that the big networks have to be able to propagate these huge Uh, uh, amounts of traffic that are required in the current internet. Okay. So they introduce bottlenecks that lead to degradation of performance or uh, even outages because their capacity is significantly uh, less than the bigger network. That's why we care. So Routlinks have their own categories as well. As uh, recently as 2016, there has been an RFC number 7908 which the, for the first time gave a formal definition of what a route leak is. This is interesting to me because route leaks exist for the last 30 years and or more. It took us so long to find a formal definition. And if you don't have a formal definition, how do you solve the problem if you don't know where it is exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. So it was a very big step that we, we got this RFC back in 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so in the RFC, they, they use a, a formal, uh, like a working, actually, 
definition of what a Routlik is, okay. which is uh, they say that is the propagation of of uh, prefixes beyond their intended scope. But there are many like examples and different types of Routlik that we have seen in the wild, mm -hmm. and they are all mentioned in the RFC seventy nine zero eight. Okay. Uh Speaking of seeing things in the wild, what do these kinds of events like BGP hijacks and route leaks actually look like to network operators? How, how do they become visible? Usually you spot it when there's an outage, right, when yeah. there's no traffic coming back to you. This is when you realize that something's wrong is going on. Because if there is a, a stealthy hijack, for example, or route leak, uh, of the types that we mentioned before, yeah. you uh, notice nothing because the traffic comes back to you normally. The only thing you might notice is a degradation in performance, uh, and you will start looking for uh, you know other uh, congestion stuff that you, uh, might take place or whatever. Yeah. But you will not realize that this is a hijack yeah. or a route leak. Um, so uh, things can be going on. For, for minutes at least, or for even hours, yeah. and in the past it was even days that yeah. the hijack would last. For example, in the last year we had a, a large number of prefixes that belonged to Apple being hijacked for six hours. Hmm. That's one example. Or an internal route leak took down the network of Rogers for 17 hours. Rogers is one of the if not the biggest uh, internet service provider in Canada. Right. That led to people not being able to use their credit cards yeah. to pay for gas. So you, you were seeing cars on the streets left uh, you know, unattended because they had no gas. And people did not have internet in their houses, so they gathered to, to community places like Starbucks in order to have internet access. And yeah. that took place in a country like Canada, yeah. which is an advanced economy. Yeah, I think it's important to keep that in mind, right? That these uh, these events have a real impact on people, exactly. on the end users who are relying on the internet. But okay, so that's vulnerabilities. Now let's talk about mitigation. Um, in some of the earlier papers that you shared on Ripe Labs about Artemis, when you're talking about uh, protecting against BGP hijacks, you make this distinction between uh, proactive approaches like RPKI and also more reactive approaches like Artemis. Um, so starting first with RPKI, to what extent does this actually help solve the problems that we've been discussing? How far does RPKI get us? RPKI is great. Everybody should apply RPKI as fast as possible. What it does, it binds the autonomous system and the prefix and there is a cryptographic signature that verifies that this combination of AES and prefix is legit. In 2018 the adoption of RBK was 7% yeah. and now four years later we're at 40 plus percent. Yeah. So there has been a, an uptick in, in adoption which is a great sign. Mm -hmm. It helps a lot and I encourage everybody who's listening to sign the ROS and, and apply RPKI. But there is this debate whether RPKI is a security protocol or a protocol that protects you against the route leaks. The people who say that it's not a security protocol, if you ask me, I, I mean, I, I tend towards leaning towards uh, security because mm -hmm. I consider it a security protocol. But the, 
the ones that are against this uh, approach, you know, in ITF, you have all these type of discussions all the time. Uh, they say that since uh, RPI does not protect you against all types of attacks, it doesn't secure you, so it's not a security protocol. Uh, because it doesn't solve the problem, essentially. And what is also valid in this, in this uh, argument is the fact that it protects you mainly against route leaks. So it, it should be considered as a, as a countermeasure against route leaks. So um, basically, when you have this uh, AES and prefix combination uh, protected by RPKI and your neighbor is also applying RPKI other than uh, signing it, only signing the, their own ASs and prefixes, whenever, whenever he receives an invalid route, mm -hmm. he drops it. If this applies, then route leaks should, of, of exact origin should not propagate. Okay, so we, we think of this as a security protocol, even if we're not thinking of it as a complete solution to BGP security. Nice, okay. So, summing up a bit, RPKI is a proactive, preemptive way to tackle a lot of the problems we've been discussing, and the more widely it's adopted, the more useful it becomes. Um, but I think it's also important to mention, uh, as we were discussing earlier, uh, that operators have to take the time to do RPKI properly and avoid some of the common pitfalls in order for it to really be as effective as it can be, right? As we say always in security, there is a trade-off between utility and security, always. In RPKI, there is the notion of max length, which has been introduced for uh, utility reasons. Let's say that you own a, a slash 16 IPv4 prefix. Mm -hmm. You can create a ROA that says that this prefix has a math, max uh, length of uh, 16, between 16 and 24. Mm -hmm. This ROA means essentially that you can announce the 16 or any sub-prefix up to slash 24 and this announcement will be considered valid. And with one ROA, you are done with the entire uh, prefix mm -hmm. and sub-prefixes, which in terms of utility, it's, you know, it's easier to do, yeah. right? But it has been proved by Sharon Goldberg in the US in a paper in 2018, uh, 17 actually, but other people as well have worked on this uh, stuff, that this, the max length attribute of RPKI is a, introduces a, a security vulnerability. Okay. So it's the same idea as the type 1 hijacks. It's, it's exactly the same idea. So let's say that I, I, did, I did this max length, uh, loose max length configuration of slash slash 16 up to slash 24, right? Yeah. The hijacker can announce, for example, a, a slash 17 or even slash 24 sub-prefix that is part of your prefix with himself as the first hop neighbor. And by, when, when he does that, it introduces an, an announcement that will force the entire internet to go towards him for this specific sub-prefix. An RPKI cannot protect you against that because it considers it as a legitimate announcement. That's very important. Like, that's, that's a critical vulnerability. So, RFC 9319 came up a few months ago, and Sharon Goldberg was also one of the authors, that 
is suggesting that uh, for each announcement that you plan to, to do in the future, you need to create a separate ROA. For example, for this scenario that we discussed, you need to create the slash 16 ROA and you need to also create the, how many uh, 24s exist. Okay. You need to create one specific ROA for each one in order to be protected against, against this type of ZOA attacks. Yeah. And the, the reason you need to create the ROA mm -hmm. beforehand is whenever you create a ROA at any given moment, on average it might take half an hour or even more time for the ROA to propagate to the rest of the internet. Right, okay. So if you need to do um, an announcement of more specifics for either for countering an attack that you are uh, having, for example, if you are being attacked by a hijacker, you can do a counter-attack and announce more specifics and still back the traffic. That's one way to, to deal with a hijack, for example. Uh, so, but if you want to do that, you need to have uh, the ROAS created beforehand. Otherwise, if you wait the last minute, it, it will be too late. So uh, th that's why you need to create the ROAS beforehand. That's the point. So the, this RFC 9319 suggests that you need to uh, create specific ROAS for the announcements that you plan to use anytime in the future so that you are not susceptible to this type of attacks that we mentioned before. Out to my address, like just a sort of spin-off question to that. Um, if somebody announces the most specific, like, like we were saying slash 24, right, is mm -hmm. the most specific that you can, that you can use. What on earth do you do if somebody announces a slash 24? That's a very good question. Uh, there has been studies. Uh, first of all, we need to explain why this, the slash 24 is significant, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So there is a, this convention that exists for the internet in order to keep the routing table as small as possible. And why do we want to keep it as small as possible? Because right now it's more than 1 million routes, it's yeah. 1.15 million as we said. Uh, these routes uh, take up memory in the routers. And not only the routes, the paths take memory as well. Yeah. The communities take memory as well. And for all these routes that exist, the router needs to do a calculation to apply the algorithm, the best path selection algorithm of BGP, and make a decision which one is the best route for each router and for each prefix. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep the, all this stuff low because, because otherwise our routers will explode. So one of the ways to do that is that operators apply filters, what we call BGP filters, yeah. which is also another way to counter route leaks, which is the proposed way currently, the main way to do it. Mm -hmm. Basically, you allow only the announcements that you should allow by your neighbors. Okay. And one of the filters that we're using is that we don't accept any announcements that are more specific than slash 24 as network operators. Okay. In order, to, as I said, to keep the, the routing table uh, sane, in a way. Okay, so there has been studies that shown, have shown that a slash 25, for example, has a propagation of 6% in the right. entire internet. So basically, it's not visible. So what happens when, as you said, very good question, what happens when somebody is hijacking you with a slash 24? Mm -hmm. What can you do? In the Artemis paper, 
we have an, uh, like an approach that you can do against these types of attacks, which is uh, basically what uh, p- uh, operators do when they are being attacked by a DDoS attack. It's okay. the same idea. So if, I, if you have a large DDoS scrubber as your collaborator, yeah. uh, uh, usually these networks have presence in multiple uh, locations, multiple POPs around the world, hundreds. Yeah. So the idea in the Artemis paper is that same as the DDoS scrubbers, this provider can announce your, your slash 24 on your behalf mm-hmm. so that they steal back the traffic from, from the hijacker since this network is more connected, more visible and more present all over the world and with less hops than the hijacker, he will, this network will steal the traffic back for you, right. most of the traffic, <coughs> not all of the traffic, and tunnel it back to you. Same idea as, as the DDoS covers. Right. This is, this is how, what we describe in the Artemis paper. Nice, yeah. So that's one of the ways our, the Artemis approach can help mitigate the impact of these attacks. Cool. Um, and obviously now we're thinking more about how to react and stay alert, how to detect attacks after they occur um, and act against them, which is exactly what Artemis is designed to help with. And all of that's clearly very important. I'm thinking of those cases you just mentioned where an attack can go undetected or maybe even unrecognized for a really long time. That's why we need monitoring, BGP monitoring and BGP alerting. So. In 2018, when we published the Artemis paper, we also got funded by RIPE, and mm-hmm. we want to thank uh, the RIPE uh, Community Projects Fund for uh, uh, funding us for the third time this year yeah. about the Artemis project, and we are very appreciative and uh, thankful for this. And we built the Artemis open source tool, which is basically an application of the Artemis paper. Not the full at the full extent, but most of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to do that for two reasons. One reason was we wanted to contribute to the community, yeah. and the other reason was we wanted to like build a tool to prove that a research approach works, basically. So this Artemis open source tool gained a lot of traction like major network operators, network providers, Taiwan ISPs in the US, big enterprises, started mm. using it. And uh, they started also asking us for support and for features mm. on top of Artemis. But we were researchers, we couldn't do any of that. So last year we started CodeBGP, a spin-off from, of the Foundation of Research and Technology. The company was started by Fondas Dimitropoulos, who's our CEO and a professor at the University of Crete that hired me, by Vasilis Kotronis, who's our CTO, and uh, he was a member of the research group of Fondas, and uh, myself, who I'm the COO, in charge of network operations. By starting GoodBGP, we wanted to expand the scope and go beyond just hijacks, because, as we mentioned, uh, there are different types of events that take place on the internet, malicious events, One of them is route leaks that we need to monitor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, uh, 
we, we want to introduce other features that goes beyond Artemis. Okay, so maybe we could discuss what it is that, that really distinguishes the Artemis approach from other forms of hijack detection and, and alerting. What's really at the heart of this? Again, the idea comes from the Artemis paper. So, as we said before, in route leaks, one aspect that you need to take into account when it comes to route leaks is the autonomous system relationships that we mentioned. So, the customer, the provider, and the peers. There are applications that try to do inferences of AS relationships for the entire internet. And based on these inferences, they detect route leaks. Yeah. But they are bound to have false positives. That's built in in their approach. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're good or not good. Yeah. It, it, the, the problem is that these inferences assume that the valley-free principle that we were mentioning before mm-hmm. applies throughout the entire uh, internet graph. But we know from research that this is not the case in reality. There is no universal application of the valley-free principle. So how do we differ from this approach? In the Artemis paper and also in the uh, CodeBGP platform, we leverage the knowledge of the network operators that have for their own network architecture. For example, I know that I have this neighbor and I know that I announce 50 prefixes to this neighbor, for example. If I announce, if suddenly the system sees that you announce more than 50, it can be an order of 10 more or it can be a percentage, like 10% more of prefixes, you are probably doing a route leak in this case. And it has nothing to do with your relationship with them. It has to do with the fact that you give me the knowledge that you have about your network uh, architecture. Yeah. And it's the same applies with the, with the type 1 hijacks. Yeah, because okay. the type 0 hijacks are very easy to detect, basically. Um, you know, you compare the data that you get to, the, to what it should have been. But in the type 1 hijacks, you basically need to have a curated list of neighbors uh, that whenever a new neighbor shows up it can either be a new peering or a hijacker but in any case when you use the CodeBGP platform Mm -hmm. you will be aware that you have a new neighbor and you will decide if this is a legit uh, neighbor or not Uh, that's with the type 1 with the type 0 and in general with the approach that we have with the CodeBGP platform we have multiple sources of information for the same resources. Okay. So, what is a resource? A resource is your autonomous systems and your prefixes that you are monitoring. It can be either your own, or your neighbors, or your ASET, mm. or whatever else you might be want to monitor. Yeah. It's up to you because it's a point-and-click configuration. You just click on a, on a window, you add an autonomous system, and the system automatically starts monitoring all the BGP updates that contain this AES as origin. So whenever you add an autonomous system to our platform, you start monitoring all the BGP updates that contain this AES as origin. So it's very easy to configure. The problem with this approach though, is that if a malicious attacker hijacks your prefixes and announces uh, your prefixes with his own AES, you will not see them. Okay. That's why you need to monitor the prefixes themselves. So, having previously 
added an AS that you want to monitor. You also go to the prefixes tab in our platform and you select bring me all the prefixes from this AS. Mm -hmm. The system collects the prefixes from all the sources that we have. We have currently more than 1600 monitors all over the world. Right, okay. We will discuss about our sources. You gather all the prefixes and you start monitoring automatically the prefixes themselves regardless of who's originating them. So now you have uh, the data that go to the, to the database regarding your prefixes and your ASs. So what's the novel idea here again? Mm -hmm. One idea was the, what we discussed before, leveraging the knowledge of the network operator. Mm -hmm. Another novel idea is that having different sources of information for the same resources, for the same autonomous systems and prefixes, yeah. you can consider some sources trustworthy and some sources not trustworthy. Yeah. For example, RPKI is a trustworthy source of information because it's a signed certificate cryptographically signed and authorized by your rear. Mm -hmm. uh, your routers should be considered a trustworthy source unless, of course, you do a, a misconfiguration, but in general should be considered a trustworthy source. The RIS Live WebSocket, which is one of the sources that we use, and we thank uh, RIPE for this, for this uh, service because it's a huge like, benefit that we have uh, by RIPE mm -hmm. that is provided to the uh, networking community and to the researchers. The RIS Live WebSocket, as you know, is a WebSocket that gets streaming BGP data from almost 1,500 uh, routers all over the world. Out of the 1,500, almost half of them, 800, are full BGP feeds. So you can tap to this WebSocket, it's a J JSON WebSocket, you can tap on it and configure the AESs, the prefixes that you want to monitor and get data only for these AESs and prefixes. The important thing about it is that it's streaming, so whenever a BGP update takes place somewhere in the world, one of these monitors will intercept it Okay. And we'll send it to the WebSocket, and then you will, it will go to the BGP platform, to go to BGP platform. Yeah. So that's one source of information. This is a public source, and it cannot be trusted because it's the public internet. And also, we have built our own monitoring solution, what we call the Code BGP Monitor. Currently, we have 152 monitors all over the world, in 58 cities, in 35 countries where we do the same thing with our own monitoring infrastructure because you know this is a monitoring infrastructure that we can control mm -hmm. the quality of. So we have four sources of information. Two are trustworthy, your BGP routers and RPKI, the public internet, RIS Live and uh, CodeBGP monitors are not trustworthy. So if you do pairwise comparisons of the various data sources, depending on trustworthiness, Mm -hmm. You can, if you find discrepancies, you can raise alarms and be confident that this is not a false positive. This is the idea behind uh, the alerting part of, of the CodeBGP platform, which is a simple idea, but also powerful, I think. I noticed there that as you start describing this approach, there's a real focus on minimizing false positives. And, you know, I guess it's kind of obvious why you would want to do that. But, but why is that a, a main focus here? The network operator, when he has a lot of false positives, in the end starts, stops paying attention mm. 
to the to the to the monitoring tool, and that's you know that uh, spells disaster most of the times. We minimize the false positives to the absolute minimum. Yeah. One thing that is interesting to mention is that in the Artemis paper and also in the Colby's B platform, the the reason why we are able to do such good uh, monitoring and without false positives is that we don't try to solve the problem of route leak and hijack detection for the entire internet, yeah. which is a very tough cookie to crack, and others try to do. Yeah. We, we focus only on the networks that use the platform, okay. because the number of data in this case is significantly lower in order to, to tackle the problem. We divide and conquer, and usually a software is built exactly this way. like. You try to build something and you do incremental small steps within the code. The same idea applies in the Artemis paper and also in the CodeBGB platform that instead of trying to, to tackle the entire uh, internet and monitor the entire internet, mm -hmm. we, we allow you to monitor your network, your neighbors, your area set maybe, or any other network that you might want to monitor, but we, you, we don't encourage you to put 70,000 AESs in the platform yeah. because this is too much data. And it's, it, it, it then becomes another um, problem that it has to do with um, uh, like big data and uh, how fast you can detect a problem and how, how much storage do you need for all this data and how much computational power do yeah. you need to make all these computations. So you start hitting limits yeah. there. Uh, so yeah, by keeping the problem more limited, yeah. you can be more accurate. That's the point of Artemis. Okay, so speaking of speed now, um, just how fast is the platform at detecting hijacks and, and other problems? We have done uh, extensive experiments announcing prefixes from uh, different vantage points all over the world, mm -hmm. from different upstreams. And we also, are the customers that are currently uh, trying the platform have done this, this the same thing. Uh, the combination of Risk Live and our own monitors gives us the ability to, add, to detect, detect an announcement mm -hmm. and subsequently a hijack or a route leak within a median time of three to four seconds from origination. Yeah. Which is, uh, I believe, the state of the art currently when it comes to speed. As I say uh, laughingly, we are built for speed. Mm -hmm. And speed is important in these scenarios because the sooner you learn about a hijack mm -hmm. or a route leak, the sooner you are able to react to it. Uh, in all the uh, incidents that have taken place in the past, we see that it takes a lot of time for networks to realize that they're being under attack, mm. usually. So we've already pointed back to uh, the Artemis paper quite a few times now, and, and the link to that is, is down in the show notes. Um, but where do people go if they want to take a look at Kobe GP and just try it out to see what it can do? So if uh, you visit codebgp.com, which is our website, we have two buttons. One is called Schedule Demo, which takes you to my Calendly uh, link where any, somebody can book a demo with myself mm. so that I demo the platform to them. Okay. That's one thing. And the, the second button is called Try It, which a user can click on Try It 
basically add an email and a name mm -hmm. and a company and they automatically get access to the public demo instance of the CodeBGP platform where we have the data for our own network, uh, the network of CodeBGP and the network of the Foundation of Research and Technology. Uh, and only this data though, because it's a public demo, we cannot allow you to monitor the entire internet, obviously. Mm. Uh, but you get a good feel because it's the same platform as everybody else. You can use the tool from there for free mm -hmm. and see how it works. Cool. Okay. Um, there's, there's another thing that I wouldn't want to end without mentioning. Um, we were talking briefly earlier about uh, filtering and other approaches that the network operators can adopt in order to ensure better routing security. And I know that you really wanted to mention the Manners Initiative in connection with this. So the Internet Society has a, an initiative called MANS, Mutually Agreed Norms for Routing Security. They have a, a guideline on how a network should like, um, behave on the Internet, let's yeah. say. And uh, they um, encourage the networks to be members of MANS, to apply these principles. And these principles are what, are what we discussed, filtering, uh, creating RPKI ROAS, uh, promote global coordination between networks and stuff like that. I encourage all networks to be members of the MANS initiative. Actually, the CodeBGP ourselves as a company recently signed a, an agreement with the Internet Society and became partners because we believe in these exact principles and we care about writing security as well. Okay, last quick question then. What's, what's the next steps for Artemis? Because Artemis was the reason why we started the company, we want to honor that and give back to the community. So the uh, recent project fund that we got by RIBE, is the goal is to build an Artemis Lite version, as we call it, which basically will be Artemis running on your web browser by using a, a very, uh, like, uh, recent and modern technology called WebAssembly, okay. which basically gives you the opportunity to run lightweight tasks on your web browser. Nice, okay, brilliant. And, and that adds to this uh, real-time alerting, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Again, it's going to be free, it's going to be for the community and for the networks that uh, are not able to pay, you know. Mm amount of money for, for the routing security. They can use something free that does less stuff, yep. but uh, at least it's free. Good, okay. Are there any like last thoughts or bits of information? I know like I've kept you speaking for quite a long time and maybe it's nice to, to end it there. Um, One thing I want to say, I want to thank you for, oh, the, for yeah. this opportunity yeah. to talk to people about what we do. Uh, we appreciate it very much because you might have noticed that I love talking about this stuff. Thank you very much for talking to us. This has been brilliant. Okay. That's it for now. Some of you out there may have noted that the background noise hopped around a bit for some of the episode. The truth is, Left Eris and I ended up talking for quite a while and we ended up getting kicked out of the room we were in. But I hope that didn't put you off the episode. As usual, you can find links to resources on 
all of the topics we discussed down in the show notes. And I do hope you tune in again for future episodes coming soon where we'll be talking about RIBE community topics, the internet in Ukraine, ways to map geopolitical relationships with RIBE Atlas, and lots more. For now, thank you very much for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time. Bye.